0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. Welcome, everybody. Welcome and bienvenidos to the Design at Large speaker series. Um, Welcome to all of our students here and all, all of our guests and also those on Zoom um, today's Design at Large speaker series focuses on uh, transborder regions. We are living in a transborder region here in San Diego, and also um, talking. We're going to be talking about immigrant integration, how we actually receive, how welcoming we are to immigrants, um, not just in this region but throughout the state of California. And we've got some great panelists here who are. Experts on these topics, and I'm really excited uh, that they've joined us today. I think most of our communities are actually quite welcoming to immigrants. Um, we just need the tools, the policies, to actually help us do that. And so, this national narrative of us being anti-immigration, anti-immigrant, is actually not probably the most common type of um, reaction to immigrants in our local communities. So with that, um, I'm going to turn it over to Karthik to tell us about the research that California 100 has been doing around this topic.
1: Great. Thank you, Mai. And I started my work at PPIC um, looking at the integration side first. And in, and in fact, Manuel, I think that was some of the early research that you noticed, right? To think about um, immigration policy is not just something at the national level, but at the local level as well. Uh, and, and to think about the kind of welcoming policies or the lack of Welcoming policies uh, in cities across California. For the California 100 research, we we have the treat of having uh, Professor Manuel Pastor here, who'll speak more about that research. You've been seeing this artwork behind me um, for the various scenarios that we have that our that our scholars have have built. Uh, and essentially, what uh, what uh, Tai Le and Manuel Pastor did was work with many experts in the immigration space, and these experts, most of them are not academic, they're the practitioners, um, to try to understand what are some plausible futures for California. So we're talking about long-term futures that where the future might look quite different from what we're taking for granted today. And a couple of the things they identified is a long-term future where there may not be that many immigrants coming to California, either because of the aging of the population or because of the kind of context in terms of affordability um, and, and, and lack of access to so many things uh, that make it less desirable a place to be. And then there's also the warmth of welcome dimension, which Manuel and his team have been talking about for, for quite some time. This time around, Maya has been asking the first round of questions, but I get the privilege to do so today. So first, uh, I'd like to introduce Ahlan Arulanantham. So Ahlan is a professor and co-director of the Center for Immigration Law and Policy at UCLA School of Law. He has successfully litigated a number of cases involving immigrant rights and has argued three times before the U.S. Supreme Court, most recently in the fall of 21 on behalf of Americans of the Muslim faith who were targeted by the federal government for surveillance because of their religion in FBI v. Fazaga. Ahlan was senior counsel of the ACLU in Los Angeles where he worked for nearly 20 years And in 2016, Ahelan was named a MacArthur Foundation Fellow. So the first question I want to ask Ahelan is to set the stage a little bit, right, in terms of immigrant rights from from the Bush years through the Biden years. And then to also talk about your own personal involvement uh, when it comes to litigating uh, on behalf of immigrant rights. And then finally, kind of thinking ahead, what are the kinds of policies California should be pushing the envelope on?
2: Yeah,
3: thank you very much uh, for inviting me, Karthik. Um, And it's a pleasure to be here and to be part of California 100. I mean, my, I sort of, it's difficult to summarize that history, um, but if I had to summarize, I would say um, California doesn't wait and I think that's something, actually, I heard Cynthia Buiza, who I think is on, um, uh, has worked with uh, Professor Pastor, t- say, you know, California has had a very different view than the federal government has had with respect to immigrants' rights and immigrant inclusion for a long time, since I've been doing this work. Um, and uh, for the most part, California does not wait. You know, There's been a, a very sort of aggressive expansion of differential policy at the state level, I'm in mean, California. That didn't happen overnight. It didn't start in 2000 or even in 2004. I'll tell you a little bit about that um, sort of history now. You know, it, it's kind of hard to imagine, but if you think about it, the, George W. Bush, who was the the president, um, you know, in 2000 and in 2004. I mean, his position was he favored legalization of um, undocumented people, um, favored, uh, quote unquote, amnesty, actually advocated for greater um, uh, freedom of movement to some extent between the U.S. and, um, you know, uh, other countries south of the Mexico and other countries south of the border. Um, <clears throat> that was his position, you know, but. But, of course, just a few months, nine months into his administration, we had the 9-11 attacks, um, and that completely changed the landscape. And I think in a lot of ways, we're still living in the shadow of that, even you know more than 20 years from now, the shadow of the sort of anti-immigrant uh, fervor that arose as a result of it, um, or, or that was sort of came out of it, I guess. I'm not sure if it was a cause, but there was a, uh, an underlying uh, sort of strata, and then it was sort of activated by that Um that made federal legislation um more or less pro-immigrant legislation basically impossible in fact it was the opposite you know you had the creation of the department of homeland security even the patriot act had some provisions that were quite um, draconian in limited ways but draconian with respect to immigration enforcement um but and here's like sort of my first example in in california and i should say sorry so so the dream act uh you know the, the law that would grant a path the permanent residence for people brought here as youth uh, who are undocumented, it was introduced for the first time in April of 2001. Right, so four months into the Bush administration. Um, but, of course, after 9-11, it didn't have a prayer of passing at the federal level. But in October, I went back and looked this up. It's so interesting. October 12th of 2001, in California, a bill called AB 540 passed which is a bill, now it's been modeled in some other states, that effectively makes it possible for undocumented students who have lived in gone to high school in California for three years to claim in-state and a few other things and can claim in-state residency. And it has actually been critical for for tuition, obviously for um, undocumented people, uh, undocumented students in in the state system. And what, what I think is most interesting about it, obviously it's a very important law in its own right, but what's most interesting about it is that timing, right? Like the fact that 9-11 had happened a month before, that didn't prevent people from seeing like, oh, of course we should do this for um, um, undocumented youth. Um, it's just like a tiny little thing of what a, a portion of what the Dream Act could be, uh, you know, could obviously authorize if, if it were actually enacted. It's not the same thing as the Dream Act. But it's interesting to see that, right, that in 2001, right. Um, there, there wasn't, though, the same kind of resistance to federal immigration enforcement policy at the state level during that era to what we see now. You know, now like the things that um, Mai was talking about where um, you started to get um, – uh, these more aggressive state policies, 287G, uh, sorry, federal policies, 287G, uh, the ESCOM program, programs like this which are basically designed to get local law enforcement to become part of the federal deportation machinery. right? Those started a little bit late in the Bush administration. There were large worksite raids. Um, you wanted an example of some things that I worked on. I represented more than a hundred people who were caught arrested in a worksite raid in Van Nuys in, in the San Fernando Valley. Uh, this is in, in two, February of 2008, um, very late in the Bush administration. It was amazing, you know, people who had just been living and working in Southern California at a printer factory um, come to work one day, and ICE agents storm the place with heavy weapons. You know, they think they're under some kind of like military takeover or something. The people all get arrested and sent to the um, the detention centers in downtown LA. It means, you know kids that night are waiting for their mom to come pick them up from school or for dad to pick them up from, you know, soccer practice or whatever. They don't show up. Um, you know, the, the emergency contacts that called if that person's not around, the kid gets sent to, to child protective services. You know, this happened in, in, to, to, you know, hundreds of people throughout the country, including right here in Southern California. Um, and at that time, You didn't get, for example, the mayor condemning it or the governor saying it won't happen or a mobilization of state resources to counteract that. That wasn't, at that time, it was, it wasn't the concept that the state might so actively resist federal deportation policy. It wasn't kind of in the zeitgeist, yes, in the zeitgeist kind of yet, you know. Um, But that changed. Um, It changed largely, I think, because of the Obama administration's expansion of the programs that Mai was talking about. And it's important to remember, this is not a red-blue thing, or at least historically has not been that way. I mean, the uh, Obama administration, um, you know, deported more than three million people, um, more than one million people more in the Bush administration over the same period of time, over eight years.
1: Um, hey, I you just time check, about two yeah, minutes? Yeah, yeah,
3: uh, no, I'm with you, I'm with you. Um, and, and more in his second term than in the first 100 years of immigration law in the history of the country, you know, from 1892 to 1991. Um, it took a little while. Uh, sorry, actually, one other number I'll throw at you. In California, 479,000 people were deported from California under the Obama administration, during the Obama administration. Just an extraordinary expansion of deportation um, authority, right? And during that time, uh, as a result, it took a little while, but you started to get state-level resistance. So there was a set of laws um, known as the Truth Act and then the Trust Act um, that made it harder for the federal government to get local law enforcement and state-level law enforcement to participate in the deportation machinery. Um, And those expanded and expanded until finally in the Trump administration you got um, like even a more aggressive kind of version of that. Um, uh, That's sort of some of the resistance stuff that happened. It's also important to talk about the inclusion side. You know, I mentioned uh, uh, in-state tuition for um, undocumented people. Other versions of, of laws like that designed to include immigrants in the economy and society expanded as well. The driver's license bill, obviously, which came in 2014. Um, Actually, there was a law license provision which allowed people to practice law um, in 2014. Um, And then um, the Trump administration came, and then we saw it sort of come much closer to the world we live in now where you have much more aggressive resistance policies california expanding saying basically it's very rare that state and local law enforcement can do anything to res- to, to cooperate with federal deportation policy with something called the values act in sb 54 um, and similarly Um, you get greater inclusion measures, like they try and ban private detention. Uh, That's actually something that's still going through litigation. Uh, The attempt to expand health insurance for undocumented people, which is expanded to children, and then people age 26 still hasn't gotten to sort of cover everyone, but it's on its way. Um, And the deportation rate massively dropped. And that's actually the reason why the rate of people being deported during the Trump era in California is actually much lower than it was during the Biden, uh, sorry, during the Obama administration. That's a product of that California resistance. Um, so now and I know I'm, I'm uh, over time. The last thing I'll say, there's definitely more to be done with this. There's more resistance, still legislation to be done. The Vision Act is one um, which would expand, uh, make it even harder for the federal government to get state and local government to participate in the deportation machinery. And there's more that can be done on the inclusion side. Um, employment is one that we're looking at, I know, um, something that uh, me working under sort of the umbrella of California 100, something that we've been looking at a lot, um, more that can be done on health care um, and, and in other ways as well.
1: Excellent. Thank you, Helen. And we'll, we'll come back in, in round two of questions on this. Uh, next, we're joined by another commissioner, Cynthia Flores, uh, who's a board member of the California Agricultural Labor Relations Board appointed by Governor Gavin Newsom. Cynthia was previously a staff attorney with the Coalition for Humane Immigration, TIRLA, the largest immigrant rights organization in California, and I would say one of the largest in the country as well. Cynthia currently serves as vice president of the Latina Lawyers Bar Association. So, Cynthia, can you say a bit more about your own personal journey? And um, I, I think it's safe to say you're not speaking as an official member of the ALRB right now. That but, is correct. It's yeah. very safe to say that. Yeah. And kind of what, what your um, uh i you know what you think we should be thinking about about long-term futures in terms of pushing the envelope on uh, policy innovation in california
4: wonderful um also delighted to be here um anytime i get down to uc san diego or san san diego in general it's always a good time um so i will start a little bit with kind of a personal uh background because it's really informed my decision-making in terms of becoming an attorney and practicing direct services, specifically in the removal defense context. Um, So um, I am, I was born and raised in Los Angeles uh, to a single mom um, who fled in Salvador in the mid-1980s as a consequence of the Civil War um, and and really thinking about uh, providing a a better life for, for her children and um, I'd like to say that that she accomplished that, me being a lawyer. My sister's a PhD candidate at UCLA, brother's an engineer, other brother does IT. So um, shout out to my mom, um, as always. Um, importantly, um, I think what shaped my perspective on immigration was that it was um, something that I dealt with on the day-to-day basis. My mom was um, undocumented in the United States for over 30 years. Um, my brother was also undocumented um, when he arrived um, at the age of nine. Um, my other siblings and I um, were born in the United States, so we grew up in a mixed status household. Um, and so notwithstanding the fact that I was a citizen and I knew that, you know, th- there was, this was my home, there was, always, there, w- there was always kind of this lingering fear of, of whether or not, you know, my home was the United States um, and if that could be also where my mom would be at. Uh, or could be in and live in um, and would I ever have to choose between my home or my mom. Um, and so I, I say that because I think, you know, th- there's, a, there's a real toll um, that a lot of folks don't think about when it comes to immigrant communities, largely in uh, part because of what May was talking about, the dehumanization of immigrants. Um, and um, you know, I grew up in a working class um, household. Um, my mom was a garment worker in Los Angeles. My aunt and extended family uh, were domestic workers. I actually joined in um, in both of that uh, work as a teenager. Um, that really um, elevated my consciousness as a working person and and dictated my passion for for serving um, immigrant working communities. Um, with that, um, you know, I've as um, Karthik mentioned, I uh, am a board member, one of five, serving in a quasi-judicial role for the California Agricultural Labor Relations, board. It is a board that is tasked with adjudicating claims um, out of a state law um, that protects the rights of farm workers to organize collectively um, to better the terms of their working um, conditions. And um, within that work, um, it's it's one of the the biggest takeaways um, for me has been that my background in immigration has been a great service for me to understand the population that we're tasked with um, with uh, helping. Um, essentially enforce their rights, which is a largely um, immigrant community. There's a diverse range of statuses, um, some undocumented, some on special temporary work visas called H-2As, um, some uh, that are just uh, have like a special uh, visas to cross momentarily as a national, uh, excuse me, as day laborers. Um, And so what what that's really kind of uh, brought to the forefront of my mind is thinking about How does, you know, state government um, not only provide the policies necessary to empower immigrant communities and and, and integrate them, but also service them? Um, And so, uh, you know, thinking about um, how we are uh, responsible to meet our charge to those folks, notwithstanding Um, their immigration status. Um, Also, as Karthik mentioned, I do have a background as a removal defense attorney. Um, My work was primarily to represent individuals um, facing imminent deportation before immigration law judges, um, represented folks both in the detained, meaning that they were detained (coughs) at immigration uh, detention centers. Um, and also non-detained, so folks that were either out on bond or had never been um, in immigration custody. Um, And that work was also a a, a very um, insightful time and period of my life. Um, I actually decided to be a practicing attorney in the removal context in light of the shift in administration, um, particularly in 2017 um, when uh, the Trump administration took uh, effect um, and was able to witness some of that very real backlash um, in immigration courts uh, that had real-life impact on on clients. Um, things like prosec- uh, prosecutorial discretion that, from one day to the next, didn't apply to individuals and really had them uh, had um, folks that were not a priority um, to to the previous administration become a priority to this administration, meaning folks that were, had been in the United States for a really long time, um, did not have a criminal record, etc. Um, and that was an incredible shift um, in, in the immigration courts. Um, I also did a lot of work um, in uh, kind of contextualizing this uh, kind of emerging thought about asylum um, and for whom asylum was actually readily available. Um, did some work at um, the Mexico-US um, border, um, doing intakes for asylum seekers or would-be asylum seekers in the United States. Dealt with some of the draconian policies that had people wait their turn, essentially out uh, on the other side of the border that should have been processed. Um, or would have been processed um, on this side of the border. Um, And also kind of reaching that consciousness, um, working with a lot of folks from the Northern Triangle, which is Um, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, um, and understanding that, you know, most of these folks are crossing not one, but two or three borders to even try to assert their claim of asylum in the United States. And so, um, again, for me, it's very important to kind of have that trans-border consciousness, thinking about the cause and effect, and how it really does impact folks, not just those immigrants that are, you know, attempting to come to the United States, but also those folks that, you know, are like me, right? Uh, U.S. citizens that have families, that live in families that are mixed status. Um, And in terms of, you know, what we can do, I think, to to push forward um, in, in California, I think we're doing a very good job thinking about creative ways to to fully integrate um, immigrant communities, not just in the sense of um, honoring their contributions, right, their financial contributions, intellectual contributions, but just recognizing the fact that they're human and they should have access to health care, right? And they should be able to have a secure housing opportunity for them and their family. Um, And they should be able to seek unemployment benefits um, when they are laid off. Um, And those things I think are are just uh, the tip of the iceberg. And um, I think we can think about more kind of civic engagement, participatory measures, but I think that's a conversation for another time, but those
1: things. Well, maybe if not another time, at least in the second round of of questions. Um, Next we have Manuel Pastor, um, who's a distinguished professor of sociology and American studies and ethnicity at the University of Southern California. He currently directs the Equity Research Institute at USC. His research is generally focused on issues of the economic, environmental, and social conditions facing low-income urban communities and the social movement seeking to change those realities. He has a very extensive bio, a bunch of books, just got elected to the Ac- Academy of American Arts and Sciences. Manuel, so great to have you here. Uh, if you could just say a bit more about the kind of research that your team did for California 100, thinking about those kind of some of these critical dimensions that uh, will potentially shape our future.
2: Thank you, Karthik. Thanks for mentioning that I just got elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And literally when I got the email, uh, I thought it was fishing, right? Like, somebody must be fooling me. I'm not getting in here. Um, So Cindy's experience is unique and common at the same time. In the state of California, 14 percent of our population is either undocumented themselves or a U.S. citizen, or a green card holder living with an undocumented family member. So this is a bigger issue, the status of mixed status families, than uh, most people think. I'm going to talk a little bit about what we did in the California 100 report. Uh, before I do, I always like to let audiences know that if my voice sounds kind of like soft or tired, like I'm a, jazz player who smoked way too many cigarettes. Uh, That's not the story. I've got a voice condition uh, called spasmodic dysphonia that, this is true, gets treated once a month with Botox because that's how we treat everything in Los Angeles and uh, it tends to make your voice sort of soft. I want to do 40 years of California history in a minute and a half. It's important to realize that in the 1970s and the 1980s, fully half of all the immigrants coming into the United States were coming in through California. And so we had a huge immigrant shock, immigrant wave, uh, which led to a reaction in the form of Proposition 187 in 1994 that sought to strip uh, rights away from undocumented immigrants in the state. And that reaction, uh, we often think of, California, with its progressive history, we forget what prompted that progressive history was a reaction to the xenophobia, organizing by immigrants themselves, organizing by their allies, and a recognition that we needed to generate a very different kind of state. And it is the state which wound up with all of the policy moves that you were talking about. So that, I think, was the era of counterreaction. I think it's important to realize that right now we need to be in an era of recalibration. Often, when we think about the future, we imagine it's going to be a continuation of the past. So it's easy for us in California to think, oh, we're going to continue to have a lot of immigrants. But if you looked at the data just from today, the number of immigrants coming into California is half what it was just three years ago. The share of the state that is foreign-born has been falling for the last three to four years. In Los Angeles and in San Francisco, it's been falling for about seven to eight years. Uh, we're actually becoming immigrant poor. And while we had a sort of uh, political reaction of trying to keep immigrants out, the real task of California is to hold on to the immigrants we've got and to attract new immigrants to come to the state with their work energy, their entrepreneurship, their intellect, their ability to create, etc. Now, when we look forward, then, what are the trends we need to be paying attention to? First is what I just mentioned, the demographics, that we're actually losing immigrants to other states. Why are we losing immigrants to other states? Well, Texas may say bad things about immigrants, but you can buy a home there. And so increasingly, the issues of immigrants in the state are about economic mobility, wage growth, housing affordability, et cetera. And that means that California needs to move past its welcoming rhetoric and actually create welcoming policies that will allow people to succeed. Second, we need to recognize in this changing demographic that we've got a very different uh, set of immigrants who are coming. Uh, in 1980, I think it was, that we calculated, it might be 19, it was 1990, I'm sorry. Half of all the immigrants who'd arrived in the last, in the two years before 1990, were from Mexico. Do you know what the share of immigrants who arrived from Mexico is in the current period? 16%. So we now have a lot of immigrants coming from Asia, coming from Central America, etc. And it means a couple of different things, the biggest of which is that uh, we've got a lot of immigrants who are arriving who are highly skilled and can place well into job markets. But we also have a lot of immigrants who are essentially refugees, particularly from the climate crises and violence crises that are forcing people out of Central America. What that means for a lot of immigrant rights organizers is while they've often said we need to welcome immigrants because they're going to contribute to our economy. We've got a lot of people arriving who are probably not going to contribute to our economy for 10, 15 years just because of the circumstances in which they're arriving, and they deserve to be treated as though they're worth something, not because of their economic contribution, but simply because they're human beings. Last piece of the uh, uh, trends that I want to point at, attention to is the aging of the state. Now, when I say the aging of the state, what you probably think, because you're thinking about the past, is white people getting older. And that's been, you know, what's happened in our state is that we've got an older, whiter population, a younger population of color, often the kids of immigrants. Newsflash, Latinos and Asians, every year, they also get one year older. (laughs) Uh, And if you look at the demographic projections for the state, the median age of the white population is actually going to fall over the next uh, 30 years. You know who's going to get older? Latinos and Asians and African-Americans. Latino median age is going to increase from about 29 to 43 between the current period and 2060. For Asians, it's going to go from about um, uh, 48 to about uh, 52 over the same period of time. And unless we address the racial wealth gap facing those communities, we're gonna have an older population without the resources to thrive. Those are the challenges facing California. Karthik is looking at me, and I'm so good that when the next question comes, I can sneak in the rest of what I was about to say.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Manuel. And and thank you and to Ty for just just amazing work uh, as part of California 100. Finally, we have Gustavo Gustavo de la Fuente. He's the executive director of Smart Border Coalition. In this role, he focuses on helping to mobilize partners and stakeholders in coalitions to design and create practical solutions to improve movement for travel through ports of entry in the San Diego-Tijuana binational region. So the question to tee it up is, how can civil society become more involved? We've talked a lot about Federal government and state government actors. But how can civil society become more involved in strengthening the binational relationship? And how does this bring prosperity to our border region here in San Diego, Tijuana? And then anything else you would like anything to add Anything else? As well?
5: Yes, of course. Uh, no, uh, again, my name is Gustavo de la Fuente. Thank you very much, Mai. Uh, thank you, Carmen, for the question. And the UCSD uh, Design Lab as well. I appreciate the invitation. So uh, I, I think I'm coming at you from a different angle than than the professionals here with me today in the sense that I represent an organization that, uh, whose mission it is to make travel and trade easier across our ports of entry. And when we look at our ports of entry, I, I'm looking at the San Diego County and uh, uh, Tijuana metropolitan area region. Okay, so I'm, I'm speaking to you from that perspective today and I've been at the helm of this organization for the last six years or so. So I get to see different situations, of course, at the border. The border is a very complex thing. But we get to talk to uh, and discuss uh, a lot of affairs that that have to do with eligible travelers, okay, so-called eligible travelers, right, people who cross the border every day for work, for family, for entertainment, what have you, many different things happening there. But uh, in terms of what this this, – Uh, you know, this nonprofit uh, work does, and the sort of the challenges ahead for different organizations like ours. Uh, Picture something before I I start really answering that question, which is every day, just in this region, we have around 140,000 people who come from the Mexican side of the border to the U.S. side of the border. Most of those people are coming here to work. Of course, some of them are students, and some of them are families uh, trying to you get in touch with other families or maybe somebody trying to start a business of some sort. But you're looking at upwards of 100,000 people who live on the Mexican side of the border. Many of them are U.S. citizens. Many of them are green card holders. And they work in San Diego, and they subsidize the San Diego economy every single day of the week, at least Monday through Friday. And this is, it is a very interesting group of people because when you look at what is really happening at the border is you have... All these thousands of people waiting in line, two to three hours every single day to cross the border. It's unconscionable that I that I, we're actually allowing this to happen. And uh, and to to answer a, a, a bit of your question is that part of the issues that I see with uh, bilateral or binational organizations like the Smart Border Coalition is that we're we're a small organization. I mean, our we are small, but we have some very civically minded and very successful. Business people on our boards. Okay, so we have we have people like Marion Walshok represents the the UC system here Uh, we have individuals uh, like uh, uh, Malin Burnham who's who's been at the civic leadership for many many decades now and and then we have organizations like Taylor guitars and Kiosara electronics and um, uh, Caterpillar who, who are on our board, but we also have and this is the kind of the interesting part about the coalition is that we have uh, Mexican businesses and Mexican nationals on that board. And we try to keep that balance between those two groups. And they're friends. At the end of the day, this is a this is a group that, uh, you know, we'd like to be around each other. And we discuss border issues. You know, how do, how do we make the border smarter? How do we make it more efficient for people to cross that border, especially if you're talking about eligible travelers? Now, obviously, a lot of things get in the way here. And one of those things that gets in the way is that we're a f- we're still, even though we have these Uh, well-known people on our board. We're a small organization when it comes to staffing, when it comes to uh, resources to make things happen. And and a lot of what happens with uh, our organization happens with many others. So one of the things that that we look for is how do we create a stronger platform for these organizations to talk to each other and to actually begin to advocate and really put stakes in the ground as far as uh, these populations that cross the border is concerned. And, you know, we don't, just give you an example, we don't have at our port of entry a green policy. Why don't we have a green policy at the ports of entry? Why do we have to breathe, you know, 452 uh, uh, tons of CO2 every day uh, on that border? Why is that? So, so those are things that sometimes we ask ourselves okay, where's the social justice? Where's the equity? Where's the environmental uh, you know, perspective on this? Where's CARB on this? Where's CAL EPA? So, those are the kinds of things that we ask ourselves, and I think partly it's because we're we're very we're too many small groups uh, working at this. I think also that um, in terms of working with governments, uh, we need to create this idea of the smart border, and the smart border isn't just about making border ports more efficient. It's it's a lot about okay, how we make trade more efficient. How do we make uh, families connecting more efficient? How do we uh, work with uh, you know, the, the 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 technology community, to use some of these available technologies today, like, you know, we see here at UCSD and through the research that you do, why don't we apply some of that at our border and make it more intelligent, right, more uh, smarter? Uh, also, I think that, you know, wh- one of the things that we don't have at this border and which I think would help us, and it would help pretty much all borders, is that we have not developed the concept of what trans-border leadership is. So what happens is they throw us into the pool, right? And you've got to swim. You know, I was not involved in this kind of work before. I was, I'm coming from fr- private enterprise in Mexico and in the United States. And all of a sudden, I'm thrown into the pool. and I'm like, what, so what do I, how does this happen? And there isn't any training for it. There's, there are courses out there. There's other universities here in, in town who provide some of this. But there's not really, you know, we don't have a toolbox to create these transnational leaders. And I think we need that. I think we need that, especially for young people to get involved in this in this conversation. Let me just add a few more things. And one of them is uh, the perception that we have and opening up a very purposeful dialogue with media. The media demonizes the border. The border is chaotic, the border is violent. Don't go there, there's nothing going on. We think it's a land of opportunity to tell the truth. I think that that, but that's something that the dialogue between some of the some of the groups like ours has, to, and we have to have those those dialogues with uh, organizations like the Union Tribune uh, and others. But I think that that plays a lot a big role in, in in the perception that people have about the border and and of of, of migration, right? Of of individuals. Uh, let me just uh, add a couple more things that I think we we really need to do. Uh, one of them will sound a little bit counterintuitive. <laughs> I say we must have a short-term problem-solving mentality, okay? When we join these groups, these small groups, the, the mentality is, oh, we have to advocate for something. Oh, it's going to take us 15 years to do that, right? Or 10 years to do this, or five years to do that. Just look at this, you know, this system, this trolley system here that I'm looking at. It took 15 years in the making. The, what we did at uh, the San Isidro Port of Entry uh, and we finished finally in 2019 took 15 years. The new old Mesa East Port of Entry that many of you perhaps have heard about it started in the, the beginning of the century, the, the thought, the planning for that. We can't wait 15, 20 years. And so sometimes when we get into these groups, we think, oh, okay, we have to advocate for this or that. And it takes, it's going to take us years to do that, to achieve something. Well, we can't do that. We have to be more you know, executive in what we do, and we have to be shorter term in the, in the sense that there are wins, there are accomplishments that we can, we can gain from the border. But we have to work with other groups to do that. And we're not very good at it. I think we need to be much better at it. Um, oh, uh, the last point is, I think we have to be very questioning of our elected officials. Usually what happens is that we're too deferential. You know, the congressional delegation comes here and we sit down, and we discuss the border and they say two or three things and we all applaud. applaud. And at the end of the day, you know, what you want is to sit down with these people and say, look, so what are you gonna do about staffing with Customs and Border Protection? They have staffing issues, okay? they get They're getting all kinds of migrants coming to the border they don 't know how to deal with that sometimes, okay? Then you have other situations like new infrastructure. so how do you handle that and how do you make things happen and And many of our politicians what 's going on is that they are they're, 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 they're very um, you know, uh, uh, inclined to a, a particular party it doesn 't matter which party it is. But sometimes they're very intensely involved with the border, and they talk about the issues, and they talk about water and the environment, and they'll then they'll talk about the the port of entry and the new port of entry, how that's great for the region. However, we don't have any staffing for that port. That's going to be the challenge. So, and then all of a sudden, it's quiet. There's nothing going on. And then we say, okay, so what's going on in Washington? Why aren't they responding? And, and maybe they've got other things taking up their time. And so, I think it's a struggle. It's, a, it's kind of an up and down, you know, in my experience, it's been an up and down battle to get things to happen. And I come from a world where we got things to work. We got things to happen. However, we did it, but we, we made it happen. So, so that, there's always these issues uh, with uh, small groups like ours. I think there's a plenty of opportunity for us to grow. Uh, but, but, I, but I believe we have a tremendous opportunity at the border. It's just that we need to treat the people who are crossing, And by the way, 80% of the people who cross every day, pretty much every day, they're known travelers. These are not people that you have to process and spend a minute in line, you know, the officer actually talking to them. These are people who we we know who they are. I mean, the, the Customs and Border Protection knows who these people are. Now, we have another issue with people going south. Yeah. Right, those people returned. Gustavo, thank you. I'm gonna, you. I'm gonna you. Like, have you pause there. I went over, but, yeah, but that yeah, was my last point.
0: That's okay. Nice. So, you know, 1994 was a very momentous year, right? Prop 187, and also OJ Simpson's Bronco chase. I mean, that's kind of, you know emblazoned in my, in my mind. Um, I wanted to talk about, um, what Manuel said, which is, um, welcoming policies. You know, we need to have more welcoming policies because our demographics are changing. There are fewer immigrants staying in California. We actually lost population in California for the first time, right? Um, these last few years. And, you know, there's the, the typical policies like affordable housing and higher wages, but, um, Cynthia and I were talking about giving rights to undocumented immigrants that that um, we haven't given them rights to, things like voting, for example, voting rights. So if you think about what are you know if we think outside of the box or think about new ways in which we can make this state more welcoming, what what would that look like? How could you reimagine how we could make this state more welcoming so that immigrants do stay here and they thrive and they benefit from being a California citizen. I'm just opening it up to everybody and then I'll open it up to the audience to ask questions.
2: So I think you suggested something uh, very important, that's certainly something Karthik has been thinking about, which is what's this version of state citizenship and being able to access uh, stuff. I did want to say that I think this is also necessary, you know, in the California under report, we offer four scenarios. But the two most relevant to this discussion are, one, all talk, no action, uh, which is that California can have a very welcoming rhetoric but actually not do anything like fix the border um, or uh, provide uh, health care or etc. And then another uh, scenario we had is California for All, which would involve some of these policies and also involve waking up about a very particular thing I want to make sure we Plant in the audience's mind, which is to understand that in our modern economy, behind every software engineer is an army of nannies and food service workers and gardeners, and the part of the state that has the highest share of people who are undocumented is the Silicon Valley. Because We can't run an economy without taking care of our farm workers and our food service workers and our domestic cleaners and everything else. So I would argue that one of the things we need to do is to wake up to that economic reality. The other thing I would argue that we need to do immediately is the number of undocumented folks in the state. It's about 2.2 to 2.4 million is matched by the number of people who are eligible to naturalize who have not yet naturalized. Naturalize those people and you create the political force to make sure that we get to state citizenship.
4: Yeah, no, hello. Hello, there we go. Um, So picking up on our conversation, I I think um, we are doing a decent job, as I mentioned previously, of honoring and recognizing the financial economic contributions that some immigrants, um, most immigrants, are are making in our society, um, in our state definitely, um, by enabling at least conversations about how do we get them access to the, the, the infrastructure of civil society, which is um, social services, right? We're all people and we should be treated with that dignity. But beyond that, I think there needs to be almost like a correlation. Right. I I think um, Manuel, you spoke about you could buy a home in Texas. Right. And what does home ownership mean to folks? It means you're you're planting your roots. Right. You are invested in it. And I'm also a little bit in politics. um, And, you know, one of the things that we talk about is like homeowners are, are those folks that vote. Right. Why do they vote? Because they're invested. Right. They're part of that fabric of that neighborhood, of of that region, of that community. Um, That's why, you know, thinking about state citizenship and how do we get to a point where we can offer that same level of ownership in defining your own destiny to immigrants? And I think a lot of that has to do with being part of the social civil fabric of, you know, being able to elect whom you want to elect, run for um, office if you want to. Right? So offering those opportunities to immigrants, notwithstanding their citizenship status at the federal level, so that they themselves feel like they can take ownership of where they're at, their own destiny, their life. Um, and I, I, you know, that's something that I think it, it isn't too far out, um, at least you know, in my humble opinion.
0: Well, I I think that it's not too far out in California, but I just moved from North Carolina and we cannot have these conversations in North Carolina. So it's a little shocking to the system, actually, to hear about undocumented immigrants running for elected office, right? So um, California is paving the way, I think, for these policy innovations.
1: Let's start calling them citizens of California, no matter, because undocumented is a federal status, right? But there's a lot that California can do for California members.
3: Certainly, uh, political rights is, is one area where the state has a lot of power and the federal government doesn't have a lot to say about it. So I think it's, there's a lot of logic to pushing that, um, bound. Um, it's very well established in law that you can change. You can't do it for federal elections, but you you can, you can change, you know, the membership criteria for all these, you know, so many important state offices in the way that we're talking about I think That's important. Um, just very quickly, I was going to say, we've, we touched on it earlier about healthcare. If you I wouldn't, I mean, there's been a huge movement to do that, and hopefully that will come soon. In terms of, like, making the state welcoming, what will make immigrants want to stay here, you know, all over the country including, I'm sure, in North Carolina, people really worry about their health insurance. It's the reason why it's been you know, virtually impossible to re- repeal Obamacare despite the you know, massive political movement to attempt to do that because it's such a real material thing. So that's something you know, we're on the cusp of doing in the state. It's like very close politically and requires this sort of a little push to get there. But I think that's a hugely, extremely important one, you know, um, creating uh, universal health insurance for, um, for undocumented people in the state.
6: Hi, I have a question for um, Gustavo. Um, I was wondering how do you see the um, improvement of the legal crossing process as playing into this narrative that, by extension, there are crossings that shouldn't happen or that are illegal, and how much more effective um, is this work in rejecting the advancement of anti-immigrant machinery compared to doing work for... Advocating for demilitarizing the border or denouncing various um, smart border movements that make the border crossings more dangerous for people and result in more um, undocumented people dying when they cross the border.
5: But so you, you first asked me about legal versus not legal or illegal crossings. Let me just take that.
6: I was wondering if you could um, maybe speculate on how much this work of uh, making the official crossing process plays into this narrative that, by extension, there are crossings that shouldn't be legal. And that, you know, um, so that was one question. And I was wondering if you could compare this work in, um, you know, this um, movement to make uh, California more welcoming to immigrants and compare that work to maybe a work of, Advocating for demilitarizing the border and maybe um, kind of advocating against smart border tech in uh, mm. parts that are not official entry points
5: okay I'm, so i 'm going to try to answer that there's a lot of a lot of nuances and questions there uh, as far as the legal and you know it's First of all, I would say it's very satisfying to be able to help people, you know, in their journey across the border. Uh, And and I will say that in terms of, you know, and maybe this this plays out a little bit in terms of the welcoming aspect of California we were just talking about. When you you, uh, fly from London to, I don't know, L.A., when you get to the line, right, and you get to the officer, usually you're going sa- to be, somebody's going to tell you, welcome to the United States, right? Well, that same experience does not happen for the most part here. Uh, yes, you are a documented individual, but your, your experience, your, your journey in terms of traveling across the border is not the same. Uh, you're treated differently. It's a, it's a di- usually you are. I mean, there are, and so a lot of this aspect is, you know, what does what the whole experience look like? For a traveler, right, uh, for a documented individual, very different from, of course, somebody who you know needs to get to the border as an asylum seeker, is perhaps not even going to go through the the, the 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 typical ports. Will go through some of the breaches uh, along the line, or maybe there's places where there's no fencing, and so it's a very different. There's two. I think there are two different worlds. Although what happens is that there's uh, there's been a in the recent future, in the recent past, there's been a meshing of, uh, you know, immigrants who want to cross and who want to uh, become asylum seekers, like what's been happening with Russians and Ukrainians, but more Russians lately, that are actually coming to the ports of entry and want to, you know, declare themselves, you know, asylum seekers. And, you know, that's, that's always been an issue because, you know, the authorities there, it's difficult for them to, you know, handle all this, to manage these people. So a lot of it, this is, if you look at it in terms of management, it's border management, what it is. And I think there's plenty of opportunities there. So I I would, I think there's a lot to do in that space of legal travel or documented travel through our ports of entry. Uh, There's many, many areas of opportunities there, areas of opportunity in terms of how we manage that, uh, I would say. And in terms of you know, you, you mentioned about uh, maybe creating a demilitarized zone out of the border or maybe not using sort of intrusive technology for individuals crossing. I believe you, you, you referred to that as well. Um, I think that the, the way that we're viewing that border needs to change. You know, we, what we do, generally speaking, is we view the border as a point on the map, and it's a very small point on that map where people get across. And our concept of the port should not be that. The concept of the port should be much, much. Uh, uh, you know, th- the line must be drawn way, way back because many people you make their lives out of the border. Right? They they go to the border. They're around the border, but you know, we we tend to create a pressure point, a very, very intense pressure point at each port of entry, and it's a very small space on the map. But if we were to take that periphery, that 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 uh, that border line and Go beyond and take it back some miles or a good number of miles, then then you'd look at the border very differently in terms of who's traveling.
2: I think it's important to realize that California needs to get this right. A quarter of our state is immigrant, Uh, about a third of our labor force is foreign born. Half of our children have at least one immigrant parent. We have the most settled immigrant population in terms of years and country of any state in the United States. And two-thirds of our undocumented immigrants have been in the state for longer than a decade. We need to get this right for the future of California. But we also need to get this right to show North Carolina that their xenophobia is not going to pay off. And that if we really move from immigrant integration to immigrant inclusion – full political rights, access to services, etc. that we will make our economy and our society hum and be an example to the rest of the country so that North Carolina changes its ways.
0: Thank you. That's a great segue to, uh, a video that I'm going to show you about our World Design Capital 2024 designation because that is precisely what we want to do between now and 2024 and beyond, which is the designation is for this region, San Diego Tijuana. And we want to reimagine what home is for this region, for people who live here, for the future generations. And so we are gonna be working on this initiative. And for those students that are here, if you wanna find out more and become a part of this initiative, volunteer or work with the World Design Capital Initiative, stick around, I'm happy to answer any questions. There's gonna be a QR reader where you can find out more information, but go ahead and play the video.
7: San Diego, Tijuana, World Design Capital, 2024. From global pandemics to climate change, contentious geopolitics to calls for social justice and inclusivity, many around the globe are rethinking ways to solve complex problems. San Diego Tijuana is on the cutting edge of addressing these challenges. Our two independent yet deeply connected cities are using design-driven innovation to meet those issues head on with histories, cultures, resources and challenges that are both shared and distinctive Our communities know our future is autonomous and collective by recognizing our similarities and embracing our differences we are rewriting border narratives setting new standards for global partnership and redefining what a binational home can be home is where life takes root home should be a sanctuary a place of love security stability a place that welcomes all people and species temporary and permanent but for some that home does not exist. And we believe that through design, we can elevate everyone's experience of home. Welcome, Welcome home. Whether we are designing a product, a production, a system, a communications tool, or an experience, in our binational region, home stands for the key values we hold ourselves to. People are at the center of everything we do. Human-centered design has begun to influence our government, social systems, and industry. We celebrate the diversity of people, cultures, and disciplines that make our region unique. We're home to some of the world's most avant-garde thinkers, makers, and doers, who understand the border is a wall as well as a bridge. Our environment and architectural tradition reflects that experimental approach, fusing history and future. San Diego, Tijuana, has been a home for cross-border policy innovation and cultural exchange for decades, in spite of a border that artificially divides us. Using creativity, innovation, cutting-edge scientific research, mobility and infrastructure development, and complex systems of cooperation, transformative changes are already reshaping our landscape society, and economy. That's because discovery is in our DNA. We are interdependent communities of risk takers who have long fostered life-changing experimentation that is improving the world, saving lives, and sustaining critical resources. Design is a key ingredient to those initiatives, ensuring that sustainability, equity, well-being, collaboration, and inclusion enhance the life and legacy of our region. Becoming the World Design Capital will be a catalyst, amplifying these initiatives creating both local transformation and global conversation, affecting communities far beyond the region. It's time to build a new binational home for design in San Diego, Tijuana. San Diego, Tijuana, World Design Capital, 2024.
1: Well, thank you, Mai, and uh, the Design Lab uh, here at UC San Diego. It's just been incredible. Our team members have been here earlier today. I'll end with three things in less than a minute. Right, one is just thank you so much to our panelists. Uh, Please come up and and speak with them. They're all incredible leaders in their their own right. Uh, Some of you who are interested in uh, some of this kind of future citizenship work, I'm happy to meet you at the lobby and talk more about that. Uh, And then finally- You get Karthik's book. Yes. It's free. You can pick up a copy of the book. Uh, I'm happy to talk to you about it or sign it or whatever. And then Vincent Rosso from our team. uh, Vincent, if you can just stand up for a second. Uh, He's our lead youth organizer. Vincent just graduated from UCR and was a former board chair of the UC Students Association. We're looking to build a movement of young people uh, creating manifestos and a striking call to action for the future of California. We've chosen a date, March 19, 2023, uh, where we'll have a youth takeover of Sacramento. Uh, And so please talk to Vincent about our campus fellowship program as well as our youth organizing that we hope to build uh, for a much brighter future for California. Thank you, Mai. Thank you, Oliver.
0: You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.